everyone. It's That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Today I have, uh, I'm really excited about my guest today. He's a friend of mine, and every time we get together, we have really good conversation, and I always enjoy the chance to visit with him. Uh, today I've got Wes Vaughn. He's a sergeant with the Hutchison Police Department, and we're going to talk. I'm really curious to learn more about how he got into law enforcement, what his uh, motivation was, some of the things that he's, he's seen change and adapt over the years, and uh, and then We'll, we'll get into it uh, partway in the episode, but I've, I've visited with Wes a little bit ahead of, ahead of time. We'll, we'll probably get into some, some really interesting conversation about what's been going on uh, in law enforcement, uh, n- not specific cases or anything like that, but more about kind of the, the social ideas of, about law enforcement. So, Wes, thanks for coming on today. I'm glad to be here. This is kind of interesting. It's a first for me, for sure. This year, so you came and did my a little snippet at my Christmas. Yes, episode, that's right. But we have we haven't had a chance to. We've scheduled this a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. but we and I've been looking forward to it. But bef- we have before now we haven't had a chance to sit down and do this, mm-hmm. even though we've got together for a couple of casual yeah. conversations. Yeah. This this will be interesting. I think you'll have a good time, and I uh, hope the listeners will too. Oh, I'm sure they will. So tell me about what, when, when did you get into law enforcement? You're originally with the sheriff's office, right? Yeah, um, I got back into law enforcement around 2005. Um, at that time, I was working for New Beginnings. Okay. So shout out to that organization. They do a great job. They do for good the city work in the community. Um, and I was kind of the, uh, I worked at the old uh, shelter that was there on East 2nd. Okay. No, um, on East Avenue A. Okay. So if you remember, that was that huge two or three story house. It was, the old, the, it was the old funeral home place, wasn't it? Yes. Or, okay. Yeah. And it had a couple houses in the back. And I really enjoyed that. But unfortunately i found it kind of wanting mm-hmm. um and talking to my dad he he said you're not going to enjoy anything other than something that's going to be different every day because mm-hmm. my dad he was a metallurgist over at uh eaton uh formerly cessna okay and he was an office guy and he loved working in the office and my mom uh, who's still with us, uh, she was a caseworker for DCF. She did a lot of child investigations. Okay. And I wanted to do something like that, but I knew I didn't have the patience that she did. So I decided to look into something with more action because I was still young and I wanted to have an impact, but also, if it came down to somebody wanted to tussle, well, then I was okay with that because um, you're a pretty I, big guy. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, when I was in college, part of the what I paid my way through was I was a bouncer. Okay, so I was thinking, you know, having watched cops and all this, this was going to be action pack. Little did I know that uh, there is a lot more paperwork involved. <laughs> And uh, I got my shot through uh, Randy Henderson, who was the sheriff at the time. Mm-hmm. And I worked uh, for uh, 
uh, Scotty Powell, who was the jail captain. And uh, I had a great few months working in the jail. Um, Got to meet a lot of good people who were in jail for things that they did. That's not saying that you know, what they did didn't happen. It happened. A mm-hmm. lot of them, you know, in those quiet moments at night, they'd say, man, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah. So I learned a valuable lesson that um, the people in our jails and prisons, you know, they're still people. Mm-hmm. We can't ever define somebody just on their actions. There is a another component that makes up that person. And I've carried that with me these last 18 years I've been a cop, and that's been one of my best tools when I'm trying to talk to somebody, whether they are in crisis or they've committed something or they're a victim. The most important thing is I don't define them by where they are in that category. I define them as a person. I try and find something common. Now, that's not always easy yeah. <laughs> um, because there's certain crimes such as sex offenses and and uh, domestic violence that I have to swallow my pride and my personal feelings on those things mm-hmm. and still do the best I can for the community as a whole. Even though that's difficult because you have some strong feelings about mm-hmm. those issues. Oh, yeah. Um, Those, well, whenever you see a kid that's been hurt Mm -hmm. and it's because that person uh, that you're talking to caused that hurt, um, inside me, you have that feeling of, I got to get through this. Yeah. Because your initial reaction is probably somewhat like rage. Mm, there, There is a component of it. And early on in my career... That was about 60%. As I've gone on, it's become smaller. Okay. Um, now it's, it's do the work. Yeah. If the work doesn't get done by you and your crew of officers, well, then there can be no real resolution for yeah. that victim. Yeah. If you don't do that work. And the work is making sure evidence is done properly, that we collect it right, that when we do our interviews of the victim and the witnesses, that we are as thorough as possible and we allow them the opportunity to call us back if they remember. Because remember, people that are in crisis have zero for memory, Mm -hmm. really. Um, studies have shown that, that it's usually a good idea just to get the highlights and then have another more seasoned interviewer talk to that person a little bit later so that they've had time to collect themselves. Because things start to come as as the flight or fight response Mm -hmm. kind of fades away, then some of the details start to come out, right? Mm -hmm. And then with it comes to the suspect, you know, make sure that we don't do anything that causes an acquittal. So, you know, yeah. you don't beat on them. You, you don't treat them like trash. You, you want to try and butter up to them. Yeah. You know, 
be that dad or mom or kid brother that says, hey, man, you made a mistake. But we need to talk about that mistake, don't we? And you'd be surprised how many of them will crumble at that because that's the wrong type of um, offense that they were expecting. Mm -hmm. They were expecting what I saw on TV (laughs) on Law and Order and that kind of stuff. And there's there can be a time for yelling at somebody, but more often that soft voice, that gentle hand, even just a touch at the right time on their shoulder or on their forearm, that will be more impactful than you just sneering at them. Yeah. So it's kind of disarming, right? Oh, it is very disarming. And and if they anticipate that you're going to come in hot, they're kind of amped up for that. Mm -hmm. And you do come in hot, then you get into a bad feedback cycle, right? Yeah, because then you're just showing off and he's just showing off. And no matter who shows off, the suspect wins. Yeah. Because we don't get that person talking to us. And, And at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is keep your mind clear and present so that because in the back of your mind you're thinking i have to do what i have to do here to make sure we make this case yeah and and that's that's hard and that's one of those hard things for new officers to learn Mm -hmm. um there is for me a lot of prep work before i even step out of my house in uniforming i go into the station there's a lot of getting myself mentally prepared for the day. What am I going to experience? Reading over stuff, exp- knowing what uh, could be happening that day or what uh, admin wants us to do that day. You know, um, If you're not in the right mindset as soon as you set foot inside the station, you're not going to be ready yeah. because at the start of the uh, – the shift, you're in briefing and you're going over stuff that needs to get done. How can you be mentally prepped at that point and get yourself ready? Can can you talk to me a little bit about that? You talk about you have to do things before you even get out of the house. Um, is that to kind of get yourself in a right frame of mind? I mean, if you had, because you have a life and normal things <laughs> that happen yeah. to you. Yeah. Just like everyone else, so you wake up on the wrong side of the bed some days. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing not too often, but some days. Yeah, um, things happen that complicate your life, just like it does for anyone. So, can can you talk a little more about that? Is it is it a process of kind of saying, I might be having a bad day, I might be feeling this way about things, but I've got to go through an exercise of making sure I kind of neutralize my mm-hmm. mind a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I've certainly said, oh, man, this is going to be a rough one, <laughs> you know, and uh, you have to find some way 30 minutes before you go into work. If it's just been a dog crap type, type of day before you go into work, you've got to be able to shut yourself off for like 30 minutes and get yourself calmed down. Because you can't be amped up already. Now, you can fake being amped up when you're on a call Mm -hmm. because sometimes that's necessary. And I've done that. Um, uh, I've had 
individuals, you know, that I'm yelling at, and then I turn to the next person and I'm speaking to them like I'm speaking to you. Yeah. You know, um, voice is a tool in our uh, toolbox uh, as much as anything else. Yeah. You know, um, I had a great sergeant I worked for, uh, Brian Mothis, and I was at. Um, it was my first time ever shooting a gun. Mm-hmm. So it was our our uh, initial training for that. And he said, the most powerful weapon you got isn't this gun. You know, it's your mouth and it's your brain. Because you're going to be on your own a lot of times. And you're going to sometimes have to talk to somebody to get them not to do horrible things mm-hmm. to you or to somebody else. And uh, that's one of those other lessons I learned. Talk. And if you haven't noticed, I can be a great conversationalist. <laughs> you are a great conversationalist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, that's... You know uh, who's better, though? Oh, I, I like to... Who is? Elaine. Elaine, <laughs> is, yeah. And, you know, she knows it, too. And she will batter me like she's got a hammer in her hand. And eventually I'll say, you know what? You got me convinced. Let's go ahead and do it this way. Yeah, and it's not that she's better, but she's as, as easy it is to talk for you and I to talk. Mm-hmm. Things just flow out of her. Oh yeah. <laughs> and well, for those who don't know, Elaine is Wes's girlfriend. And well, thing is, she operates at a different level. I mean, she processes stuff so much faster than I do, and she says I process stuff fast. Just not fast like her. And I agree with her. Well, her brain is always right. Yeah. Now, occasionally, I will get her when we've got to make a turn in our thought. You know, she's like in the old uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons. I'm Jerry Mouse. And, you know, I made that turn. And she's Tom Cat. And she's, Still going. Yeah. She, she tumbles along. And that's when I get my victories. <laughs> but they're few and far between. <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, is that you do... You, most of the situations you encounter in law enforcement require you to think through the situation and to be able to work through it by talking to people. It's not a realistic solution in your experience to to come in hot, to come in guns blazing and saying, this is how we're gonna handle this situation. Yeah. Well, you can, you can go into a situation and say, everybody's gonna stop and we're gonna sort this out and talk and be that person of authority and leadership to people who are, who have become incapable of that kind of thought process because they're so involved, mm-hmm. they're, they're in it. And how can they step out of themselves and see the bigger picture? Yeah. And that's, that's usually what happens when we deal with low level, um, civil matters, you know, when we're talking about property or the, you know, dealing with, you know, love and affection that's gone bad and that kind of stuff. Um, And sometimes with batteries, when it's between family uh, themselves or even the occasional DV, but when it gets to be um, those higher level of priority calls where it's a shooting or a stabbing, you have to go in and you have to be, okay, I'm here now. I am in charge 
and I'm going to be a little bit more amped up because I need to start looking for if this is going to erupt again. Mm -hmm. And I have to be able to react as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, but on the that other side of that coin, I have to make sure I'm in control of myself yeah. at that point. So I can use the appropriate stuff and not go overboard and again ruin a very good case. Mm -hmm. um, I was a field training officer for years and one of my big things is don't do something that's going to make a fantastic case, you know, go bad. Yeah. You know, you control yourself. You are out of all the things in the on that scene, you can control yourself the most. Yeah. So make sure it's not you that caused the mess up. So uh, that's that's been um, a big part of my career. And, yeah. and, and a lot of that, you've done a lot of training with, with other officers and mm -hmm. kind of impart this wisdom and knowledge about yeah. what you've learned and what yeah. you've experienced. And, and, and that's all from I'm standing on the backs of great officers. Um, uh, Sergeant Lance Smith with the Reno County Sheriff's Office. You could not ask for a better prototype to build your sergeant career on. Mm -hmm. Man's fantastic. And he has seen everything three times more than I have. Um, I love that man. Uh, like I said, Sergeant Mothis, mm -hmm. um, Sheriff Campbell, um, who uh, who I worked with in investigations when I was with the offender registration program, and he was one of the detectives. And then I had the honor of him being my captain. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Sheriff Henderson, who has a wealth of knowledge of how to do the job right. Yeah. And then over on PD, um, you have Darren Truen, mm -hmm. who's been a <laughs> he, he's almost a community uh, asset with his time on. He's yeah. been a fantastic he, sergeant. And he's been around for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Chief Hooper, who comes from a much more metropolitan uh, area, and the stuff that he's imparted and done has really helped us um, as an agency. And I, I'm glad that I'm working for him. He's been somebody to learn a lot of stuff from. He's brought a lot of new approaches that I think the community's appreciated. I, I would I would say so. Now, hasn't always been the easiest transition, but the man has a force of will, and, and I'm sure somebody out there is going to say, "Oh, you're you're just making sure you're you're buttering your side of the bread right," <laughs> and, and that's not the case because. Uh, I've had disagreements with him on stuff because I'm also the FOP president. Yeah. But I've always tried to make sure that if I have a disagreement, it's not because I'm shaking my fist and shouting at him. Yeah. Um, but no, he's he's got a force of will that if it's going to get done, it's going to get done. Yeah. And that's that's something to learn and watch in this profession because you have to be a certain force of will on others because this is Kansas, baby. And yeah. It's everybody's got some sort of will because 
that's what the environment here in this wonderful state creates. And I love being a fourth generation Kansan. Yeah. So I was going to say that we're all in Kansas, particularly like in this, it seems like in this part of the state and, and uh, further west, it's, it's that we're all, we, we've all had to develop a certain resolve to face whatever the world throws at mm-hmm. us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a, as a result of that, it seems like Kansans have, they do have this kind of, well, I will bend things to my will. Yeah. Oh, and this summer proved it with my garden and my, <laughs> and my <laughs> rabbits and chickens. Well, talk about this. I I was going to get into this at some okay. point, but you, the, these are some of the things you you really like doing. You love gardening, and I mm-hmm. and you've had some great uh, posts about um, what's going on with your garden mm-hmm. you, and some insects that you've had in there. You had a, yeah. the last one I saw was a grasshopper with that a wasp had mm-hmm. put eggs on the grasshopper but you also like raising chickens and rabbits right yeah okay talk talk to me about how you got into that okay um so when elaine and i moved in uh which is a different story for another time for <laughs> sure um she already had a couple chickens and rabbits and i already had a garden and uh, we married the two uh, very well. And I found out that I actually love the animal husbandry of mm-hmm. raising those animals. Um, and then also having the ability to grow my own food mm-hmm. at, at another level with having those chickens for the eggs. And occasionally, well, one of these days I will have a chicken fry for some of those chickens, uh-huh. you know, because they're getting pretty plump. But <laughs> also with the rabbits, you know, that I now have a meat source as well uh-huh. on top of things. And rabbits multiply if you just leave them to their own devices yep. uh, very quickly. And so I've had to learn how to do the whole thing from raising to the point where it's time to call and slaughter slaughter, and then, um, you know, dress out Mm -hmm. what I have. And uh, I found out that uh, from my mom that uh, her grandparents, my great grandparents, uh, Ben and Leona Rollins, they did the same thing. They had rabbits. Really? On their house. Yeah. And uh, they also had chickens and, and whatnot, but occasionally there would be a couple of rabbits that would be slaughtered. And that's what um, a lot of African-American families did. You know, they'd have, you know, squirrels to go out and hunt, but they'd also keep like rabbits and mm-hmm. have, you know, that in their pot when winter comes. Because it can be, a, like you said, they multiply and they can be a pretty mm-hmm. reliable food source. Yeah. Right? As long as you got green grass somewhere, they're going to be just fine. <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, you know, she won't, my mom won't ever eat the rabbit because, you know, my mom, as hard as she says she is, you know, she's gotten a little soft. I mean, she'd still take me. I, I will say that without a doubt. She'd go two out of three rounds and she'd knock me out, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, who's your mom? Uh, my mom is uh, Jerry Tift. Okay, I was going to say, yeah. say not a lot of people know know her. Yeah, um, and uh, my dad was Eddie Tift. Uh-huh. So, and uh, they, uh, my mom's 
parents. And, you know, so I felt a connection now uh, to my past being somewhat a little bit more independent, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, of my own stuff, especially when the pandemic came through here and, you know, we had supply issues. I was still getting my eggs at a pretty good price. Yeah. And I still am. Yeah. And uh, didn't always have to get, you know, hamburger or, or something like that. I had rabbit meat yeah. that I could cook. And, and rabbit is really tasty. Um, yeah. Well, I think people for, sometimes forget that there are some really high-end dishes that are made yeah. from rabbit. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I can't, can't remember what they're called right now. You probably know them. Uh, there's... The one that always comes to mind is the Hassenpfeffer. Hassenpfeffer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, that 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 German dish. And it's, I've never made it. You know, I've, I've always just had roasted rabbit. Um, Elaine and I made uh, uh, rabbit enchiladas. Hmm. And uh, that was, that was, that was outside. Was that it? Was, yeah. It was one of my favorite meals. Uh. So, I might have to try. I might have to try this out sometime. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you have a tough time this summer, though? The weather was awful. The weather just killed a lot of my garden. Um, we got lucky though, because I had been doing some reading. Um, I don't read as much as Elaine does, but occasionally I'll get a good book, and one of those books was doing an integrated urban farming. Okay. So that where you have this gigantic tree and some of those plants that are available to be used in shade or in direct sun, well, I put them in shade mm-hmm. and they manage to survive. And so I'm still able to get now some peppers and a couple watermelon. Um, my tomatoes, though, they just... Shade or in the sun, they just could not make it. It isn't part of that, I think, is because it never cools down at night enough, right? I think so. I mean, I it was rough. I I've had I had friends that said, "Well, I got my tomato harvest, and it was one yeah. tiny little misshapen tomato." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so and I know the plants were trying as good as they they can. So this this fall and. and at the time of this recording, it is the first day of fall. Oh, yeah. And it looks like it's fall out there. Feels like it finally, yeah, too. Finally. Um, I will try and do a lot of rehabbing. And part of the stuff I'll use is the waste from those rabbits and those chickens. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll dig it right into the earth along with some other stuff. Um, I try and keep it as organic as possible because. Um, I'm, I'm one of those beatneck types, you know. Yeah. You know, I don't want to put too many chemicals in my ground. There's enough that comes in from the sky anyhow. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's that's what I plan to do this fall. So, and I'm sure Elaine will uh, be a good sor- uh, sport and help me out help with it you because out with it. she's in our relationship. She is really the planner. And I'm glad that she's the planner yeah. on this. I, I can contribute, you know, but, you know, generally she creates a plan and I really don't have to add anything else. So she'll ask for my input and I appreciate that of her. Some, sometimes that's really nice, too. If you have somebody just says, hey, we're doing this thing. Yeah. 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 That, and, can, that can make it nice. And, and like I said, she's she's a bit smarter than I am and she processes that much 
different level than I. And so what could would take me, you know, half a day to sort out and figure out, well, she's got it done in 10 minutes. And that is so much of a relief. Yeah. So to let that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something that you mentioned earlier, and we talked a little bit about your mom. And uh, I wanted to come back to that a little bit. You talked about your mom being a case manager. Do, do you think that seeing that kind of that experience in your family and the the kind of you know social work is mm-hmm. you, you tend to deal over a lifetime with this you know same people you might you see the same problems uh, and and it's a it, what we'd say is an adaptive issue or an adaptive mm-hmm. problem. There's no quick fix for a lot of these. These are in, embedded systemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, historical issues that families face, and in social work, you tend to look at that and say, "You just keep trying." Yeah. And, and did that influence the way you kind of approached law enforcement? You think it does, um, because I'm seeing now the great grandkids of some of her cases from early on. Yeah. And. Uh, some of them have gotten better because whatever my mom or like dad a cotton i'm throwing all the names out here yeah. so that they hear this um or uh chris stafford who is mm-hmm. a supervisor or um cherish uh God, i can't remember her last name she's gonna have my rear end for that <laughs> uh, uh they imparted something on that kid yeah. and for some reason or not it's stuck and that brought them out of the quagmire that they were sinking into yeah that their parents had sucked into not saying that their parents were bad again it, it's one of those their parents miss something and yeah. how to raise their children properly or it's just the way it's always been. And so they are going to continue that tradition. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't working for those kids. And so that's when the state gets called and they do their investigation. And sometimes law enforcement, we get involved. And if it's something that's not right, well, that's when we intervene. I don't know if you knew this, but Reno County for a long time was one of the leaders in pulling kids and making these kind of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we were trying to fix things. Yeah. And I am still trying to fix things. Um, but as we've gone on, my mom and I, when we're out, I'm helping her shop for stuff because, you know, now she's gotten on in years. I can't say. That's a state secret. I can't tell you how <laughs> old she is now. Um, she will see these kids that are now adults and have kids of their own mm-hmm. or even grandkids. And she'll tell and they'll tell her how much of an impact she was on their lives and how that's actually helped to improve them. When she retired last year, there was this certain amount of people in this county that said, oh, you can't do that mm-hmm. because they still call her asking for advice. Yeah. And I told my mom, well, mom, why don't you just set up a little company? And, you know, you can take all these requests on phone or do a radio station. You can they can talk to you about these things and maybe you can pass on. But she was done. So, yeah, she's ready to retire. 
what it's as you were talking, it kind of occurred to me that you get, one of the things we we really see in this, isn't it, is that th- these are generational, multi generational issues that mm-hmm. that people face, and, and what we're really trying to do is just make some impact at some level, so we don't continue that cycle. Even if it just pauses and stops, and somebody starts to think about maybe taking a different trajectory. That's really what we hope to do in these cases, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, I, in part of my career on patrol with the sheriff department, I was an SRO, and uh, that has been more impactful as the years go by. Even though I was there for only maybe four and a half, maybe five years. Um, because those kids now are all adults and they recognize me on the spot. And as years have gone on, I've seen so many other faces, mm-hmm. but they recognize me. Oh, it's Deputy Vaughn or Officer Vaughn. Yep. I got to go talk to him. And they'll tell me their struggles. They'll tell me their triumphs. Um, I was uh, at the Kansas Leadership Center uh, a few days ago um, with uh, taking the class there because um, I'm always trying to be a better leader for my guys. Um, and one of the people there, um, I knew her when she was in the grade school and middle school uh-huh. at, over at Bueller. But now, what's really sweet is her dad was my uh, junior high principal. His sister was great friends with my mom at when they went to Sterling High. And both their dad, their uh, this gal's uh, granddad, was my junior high football coach and grade school uh, uh, gym teacher. Okay. And so it was just neat to see this this person uh, that I actually had a little bit of an impact on. Mm-hmm. Um, she was so happy to see me. She said, oh, my God, I hoped it was you when I saw your name on there. <laughs> it was just a treat. And she got me caught up. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I haven't had a lot of contact with her, you know. All the hours and years that have gone by since I was an SRO, mm-hmm. I'm sure she's come across hundreds of people. And of those hundreds of people, maybe a few dozen had a much more uh, bigger impact, but not as significant because I was there at the right time. Yeah, And that's what social work and cops always have to be. We have to be there at that right moment for that impact to be significant. And my mom had a great knack for being one of those. Mm-hmm. And don't you think it, it it really is a statement? I mean, certainly in the field of social work and law enforcement, but it's kind of a charge to all of us, right? We, we never know what moment is going to be formative or impactful in a person's life. And at any given moment, we have a choice in how we engage with people, mm-hmm. and 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 it, we can make a real difference, even if it doesn't seem like it at any moment, right? Yeah. And certainly in the work you do, 
because you're brought into these crisis situations with people in these, you know, a lot of times their worst moment, mm-hmm. uh, you you have way more opportunity and, and a potential for more impact in those times. Yeah. Um, I would totally agree with that. The times I've been there that later on somebody remembers me, mm-hmm. it's always in a point of crisis. Yeah. Whether they're the perpetrator of the crisis or they're the victim of the crisis yeah. or they're just the bystander of the crisis. So as a police officer, I want them to try and remember me as fair, firm, and consistent. Mm -hmm. You know, if nothing else that they take away from the interaction I have to have with them or they have to have with me, if I'm those three things, I'm more memorable, I think, as an officer. Yeah. Uh, because the, they need that kind of stability at that point. Um, there's a lot of people I have arrested over the years that have come up to me and said, man, that was the first time anybody treated me such and such. Yeah. And I said, well, dude, you're welcome, but I've always found... I don't need to be an a-hole when you're already in the back of that car. Yeah. I don't need to be. Yeah. You know, no matter what you've done, I'm going to get you there, get your process. We're going to get you going on to the next step. Why do I need to take anything more than that from that situation? Well, and you had said something early on about how you had the opportunity to to meet a lot of people in jail and, and got to learn that there were a lot of good people there. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, I, mean, I think outside of the work in law enforcement, people that have direct contact with people in jail, um, there is kind of a sense that, ah, well, just, you know, everybody in jail deserves to be there. Um, and like you said, a lot of them have done things that brought them to that place and mm-hmm. that's, that's their, their issue and their doing. Um, but talk about that a little bit that, there still has to be that component of humanity, right? That mm-hmm. despite the fact that you're here and you've done this thing, um, particularly in jail, a lot of those people are going to come back out mm-hmm. and do other things, right? And and that's the major point you just made up. They're going to come out. And do you want them to come out thinking that nobody's going to care for them, that they are going to be defined by this singular issue or singular incident? Or do you want them to come out knowing that even the person that put them away thought of them as a human? Mm -hmm. And if that one person who saw them at their worst at that time can still think of them as a human, well, that may give them the courage not to go back down that same path. Mm-hmm. And if they don't go that same path, well, then they've got to do something different. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to, as I like to tell them, hey, you get out, chop the wood, carry the water. That's something I got from Shara Gonzalez uh-huh. over at New Beginnings. Do those simple things to get you through the day. Yeah. And that will carry you on to bigger things. 
I like that. Chop the wood. Carry, carry the water. water. You just got to do the things to keep yourself warm, keep yourself fed. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you do those. And, and actually, you have to do those things. Those are fundamental. Yeah. Right? You have to do those before you can do some yeah. of the big things. And, and focusing on that fundamental for that person that's coming out of that addiction or coming out of some other type of crime or somebody even dealing with mental health. Because mm-hmm. mental health and crime are very intertwined. Mm-hmm. Not as an excuse, but as an actual fact. Some some people have serious mental health issues. They're causing crime because they can't control it. Yeah. But they need to focus on those fundamentals to get them past that mental health crisis and be on track with their medication and be on track with their talk therapy. And for them, some of the chopping wood is that. Some of the chopping wood is the medication, treatment, mm-hmm. therapy, and making sure those things happen, right? Yeah, that's correct. Because the rest of it is going to be challenged mm-hmm. if, that's, if that fundamental yeah. issue isn't addressed. Yeah. And uh, the police department is trying to work on that component. And I think we're making gains on that. And there's been it, there's there's been some changes on that. The more more training on mental health awareness. Yeah, that's I think correct. Don't don't we have a um, kind of a hybrid position? Don't we mm-hmm. with a mental health in- yeah. intervener? Yeah, and that'd be Jesse Jones, who is a very bright and a very good officer to be in there. Uh, he, he's he's a he's one of the good ones. And that, and that's that's because we recognize that, and probably because we were seeing um, that a lot of the people that law enforcement's engaging with are not just what we would say breaking, you know, breaking the law. Mm-hmm. They're they're in a mental health crisis. Well, it, it goes back to some of the fundamental changes and discussions that we're having as a profession. Um, where you know we just can't arrest our way to a better peaceful sustainable society mm-hmm. it does not work because we've been doing it for the last well i'm i'm 43 so 45 to 50 years it just doesn't work because eventually they get out or because they're there and all they're really doing is just waiting to die Mm -hmm. at that point you may get some semi-free labor but it's still not worth the cost of that incarceration so and i i like this as a profession what can we do different to keep them out of our jail cells to be productive because that's what we need Mm -hmm. we need all the people in our nation to be productive and we want them to be productive. And I think deep down, everybody wants to be a productive member of society. Mm-hmm. Whether that is um, just being an artist and creating art and creating a visual or auditory uh, cue to what their truth is, mm-hmm. um, to the person that's out there digging a ditch you know, to get new infrastructure going through. Um, There is something for everybody to do to make this 
already a great nation even better. So, and it kind of goes back. I think it's so it's so good, and it's one of the things I really love about conversations with you because we can touch on a number of topics, and it all kind of ties together. But it everybody wants to matter, yeah. Right, everybody wants to feel like their time on this earth has some purpose, and that it mattered to somebody. Yeah, and and it seems like some of the things that we deal with that that, that are unpleasant in the world are rooted in the sense that a person feels like he or she doesn't matter and that they don't have that Mm -hmm. sense of purpose Mm -hmm. and meaning. Uh, I would agree with that. 95% of the population of this world, they want to be able to say within their circle, I matter Mm -hmm. and you matter. And we may not have to do fantastical great things. We don't have to be Jeff Bezos. We can just be Wes Vaughn and Jason Prose yeah. and have this kind of conversation like we're having. And it may not matter to more than 10 people. But it's enriching for us, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's one of those, you know, years down the road, they, we, what was it? Remember that? Yeah. It was great. You know, it matters to us and it doesn't give two horses whips <laughs> if it really mattered to anybody else. Yeah. You know, but, you know, we also have that 5% where they do want to see things just burn, where they are so hurt. Yeah. They're so damaged. And that's where the incarceration comes in, where we're going to keep you here and maybe somewhere down the road we'll figure out some way to help you heal. But you got to stay here, bro. Because in the meantime, you might hurt someone mm-hmm. else, right? Yeah. Or, and or yourself. You know, they're, they're, I love that we're having these conversations on reform of my profession. Mm-hmm. Um, but reform should never be banning. Okay? Reform is giving me the tools so I can be better in my profession because I'm always trying to be a better officer, a better sergeant, um, a better ideal for people Mm -hmm. uh, to be, um, a better ideal for myself to be. Yeah. Uh, But you, you can't just say we're going to abolish the police and then put in this whole new framework which pretty much does everything else and but not call it police yeah you know because people when they're in crisis they may have to respond to somebody that looks like me of my size or stature Mm -hmm. that unfortunately it when it comes down to it i'm willing to do you know those things that will get him into custody Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't like that. As I've gotten older, I know I heal longer, uh, and I, I'd rather do it peacefully, because that's the true victory. If I don't have to put hands on somebody, then I've truly won. Yeah, because it was—it's now a battle of the minds. Yeah, and as I have, I've gotten older, I've realized that. 
that mind battle is much more satisfying in the, the physical battle. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, we're, we're on this topic and I, and I want to explore this a little bit because I think this is, there's a lot here. There's been a lot of conversation around law enforcement in the last several years. Uh, some of it around changing uh, the way law enforcement engages the community. Uh, some of it restricting uh, what law the tools that law enforcement has available mm -hmm, to it. Mm -hmm. Some of it around adopting uh, new practices. Um, and some of it has been uh, a kind of a conversation about uh, racism in policing mm -hmm. and whether we, that we have a system that is um, not fair to minorities and people of color. And I, and I, I wanted to talk with you about this because you have a foot in, I mean, as a police officer, as an African-American, you have a foot in both worlds. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really interested and curious to hear uh, your perspective on this, uh, understanding kind of both, both worlds here and how they intersect with each other. So, and, and let me preface this, I've been doing this for nearly two decades now, which doesn't seem like it's been that long, but it has. And I will say this first. My profession as a whole, I believe, has gotten darker skinned, uh, more varied in the type of behavior, uh, the type of people that join this profession. And it has gotten more women involved. Mm -hmm. And I think that has helped get this conversation going. Yeah. Now, some of the stuff that my profession has allowed to happen, those horrible mistakes that are being prosecuted the way they need to be, mm -hmm. because those actions are still crimes. Yeah. Um, we have to have these conversations if we're going to be a more integrated society. I went to a training in Colorado about bias-based policing, and I found it fascinating. As law enforcement, we are the first line in what the status quo is. Mm -hmm. So let's take a journey back 80 years ago. Well, more than that now because we're in the 2020s. Let's go back 100 years ago. Okay. So let's go back into women's suffrage. Okay. Now, that's kind of crazy. It's only been 100 years when you think about I, it. I know. You know, uh, my great-grandmother, Leona Mary, when she was an adult, she couldn't vote. Mm-hmm. That's that's fascinating. That's only four steps removed from me. Yeah, you, know, you she, can reach back and see that. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, she, there, I've got a photo of her holding me as a baby, or at least my mom does. Um, so back then, law enforcement was tasked that hey, the status quo is this: mm -hmm. we don't allow women to vote, and you're going to make sure that happens. So what happens with my profession? 
Well, we're anti-women at that point, uh, aren't we? Yeah. Because you're enforcing the law at the time, mm-hmm. which says the law is women can't vote. Yeah. And police have an obligation at that point to yeah. enforce that law. I don't get to pick and choose, you know, ultimately what laws I can enforce and not enforce. Now, I have discretion. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, you know, have the kid, you know, that's got like a little, you know, puff of marijuana and say, okay, kid, I'm going to give you a warning this time. You're not going to do this again and have a serious conversation about, hey, don't do this at this point. Your brain is still developing. Yeah. I want you to be successful. Once you get out of college, if you want to do this, you can do it on your own money while you're making much more money than I am as a civil <laughs> servant. Well, God bless. Yeah. Just make sure you do it in a place where it's legal. Yeah. You know, go to Colorado. All right. Go to California if that's what you want to do. Yeah. But I want you to be successful first. That's always been my spiel with those type of kids. And it's worked. Yeah. You know, I've had a couple of say, you know, I thought about it and yeah, I want, I want to make some money. I said, all right. Yeah. Now you know what you got to do. Yeah. Go yeah. get a trade school. You know, you got to chop the wood. Yeah. Carry the got, water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but when it comes to women's suffrage, I can't let you vote because yeah. I'm going to have my, my rear end handed to me by my boss. So it, it kind of goes back to what you said earlier about um, y- you you have a job to do, mm-hmm. and it's it, it, and you have to suspend for a moment your personal feelings about a situation. Yeah. yeah. And just like on the other end of it, where we said you you may want to just throw this guy to the ground because he did something awful. That's you have to set that aside because your job is ultimately to make this case yeah. in the situation there. What I'm, what I'm, what I'm gathering is, uh, even if somebody felt differently, even if somebody said believed in women's suffrage at that point, mm-hmm. they they can't just ignore the law, yeah, because they have a belief that's contrary to that, yeah. And society wants us to be that way. We wanna, they want us to be both of that. You know, whether we agree with it or don't agree with it, personally. That doesn't matter when we're in that profession, when we're wearing that uniform. You know, we have to hold the line. Now, let's go forward into the 1940s, 1950s. What do we have going on? End of World War II and the Civil Rights Movement. Mm -hmm. Now, I will agree that officers of that era went too far. Mm -hmm. They had all those old teachings that were still very strong in them about the proper place for people of my skin tone versus their skin tone. Because there is very few African-Americans in law enforcement anywhere. Yeah. Um, Though I will say that Kansas had some of the very first uh, African-Americans in law enforcement as, unfortunately, Oklahoma. But that's another story (laughs) for another day. But... We have segregation, we have Jim Crow. Those that are in power uh, above police, you know, those city fathers and all that kind of stuff, they're telling them, we're not gonna have blacks show up at our schools 
to sit down with my kid, Jimmy. Mm-hmm. You're going to make sure that doesn't happen. I don't care how bad you have to be. It's not going to happen. So, and I think really, and yes, you have um, some other stuff with the same sex and those those civil rights issues mm-hmm. come up. But the thing that has carried on probably the longest has been the civil rights for minorities, okay, mm-hmm. and women and, and all that. But it's always been the other, and that's why I'm going to preface for minorities, the other, the other. versus what is the mainstream. And, and there, it seems like there's – so there's just built in some conflict between law mm-hmm. enforcement and and from where I would say, look, looking through some of the examples, the laws that need to be changed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. until those laws are changed, yeah, there's there's a baked in conflict within law enforcement. Yeah. And when you have a monolithic profession, which law enforcement was until pretty much um, the last twenty years. You know, because we had Rodney King and all that other stuff happen. Mm-hmm. And you still have those mentalities that are now screaming that they still are important. Um, and we start having these conversations. Of course, when these things flare up again, from which they do, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say from time to time, they flare up. And, and it's depressing the regularity of it. Yeah. Um, what happens? If that admin doesn't realize now that they have to change and they have to change the culture, um, they get swallowed up and they need to be. Yeah. Um, I have been fortunate enough to go to conferences that are nationwide. And I can say that the officers that I have met there, I have never met one that had malice for a particular group of people. But they will tell me that they've got people like that in there. Mm -hmm. So the problem gets to then, well, why are they still here? Is this an issue where the officers need to tell that person to leave? Or is it an issue that admin needs to wake up and say, you need to be gone and not come into this profession anymore? I think that is going to be the next big conversation for law enforcement. Why do we allow people who have a backward thinking? Because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a human. You're a human. There is nothing different based on race. There is differences in my experiences and my physicality, mm-hmm. but yes, because of who I am. Yeah. I like to lift. I like to do that. You like to bike. Yeah. It's a different body set, but I'm not lesser and you're not lesser. Yeah. We're just different. different. Um, I, I just, I just hope we have these conversations sooner than later. Because there's enough craziness in the world right now that uh, law enforcement 
has to be united with the common man. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, because we've we've seen it already where people want us to do certain things, and we can't. We have to follow the law. We yeah. just can't take it on ourselves to say no. This is wrong, and you're going to do it this way, even though I have no no evidence. Yeah. To show otherwise. Yeah, because at that point you are you are making law mm-hmm. at that point, right? Yeah. But you talk about the conversations, and I think this is interesting because this hits on something I've always thought, and I and I do understand it. I. I it seems, and it's not. It, it's most recently we're seeing this in law enforcement, uh, but I think we've seen it in other areas too. Um, there, there's a, kind of a reaction to having conversations ab- about these difficult issues, and I mm-hmm. think there's a feeling, like I said, broadly in a lot of areas, that having the conversation is somehow opening the door to criticism or admitting fault or something like that. But we do end up in a cycle, don't we, where one community wants to have a conversation about the issues. Another community wants to say, we don't want to have that conversation because that's mm-hmm. that's going to open us up to a lot of things we don't we don't want to address or, or deal with, or it's going to open us up to unfair criticism and people sometimes can be unreasonable and don't want to hear the explanation. <laughs> oh, but, I know that so well. But really, and you kind of alluded to it in, in some different areas, but the the path to improvement, and, and I've always thought this in the law enforcement discussion, and I think we do, I'll say this, I think we do a good job here in Hutchinson, but the path to improvement is the conversation, mm-hmm. right? Because we have to... Uh, growth happens from kind of looking within and mm-hmm. saying, well, how could we do better? What yeah. could we do better? Um, is there something internally that we need to address? Um, is there something structurally that we need to address? And then by that conversation, you can start to change uh, and, and move to something that's a little more, well, to where we want to go right mm-hmm. to a place to, to some future place that we want to go instead of just saying well we're going to stay right here and wait for us to be forced to move to a different place yeah does that make sense so let me put it in in terms of wins and losses when we're winning you know, it's pretty much easy street. But when we take that L, mm-hmm. that's when we have to really take a look at ourselves. And people don't like to lose. Yeah. And when they do lose in this era, there's all sorts of blame to go around. It was this, it was that. Mm-hmm. Very rarely is there an inner reflection. Mm -hmm. Now, the best athletes, when they take a loss, um, they will take a look at themselves. What did I do wrong, okay? What did the team as a whole, which I'm a part of, Mm -hmm. do wrong? Um, Love them or hate them, uh, 
coach uh, Belichick mm-hmm. for the Patriots, mm-hmm. um, he is phenomenal in analyzing what the deficiencies are. And, and realistically, if you were to train him in a different format so that he would be ready for any sort of type of governance um, or legislative, he'd be a bad man mm-hmm. in the political arena because he's got he's got one of those sharp minds that, like Elaine. He just processes things at a different level. Mm-hmm. And he's very good on that self-reflection on how can we be better. And he's, and this is the other point, he's not above of just scrapping the thing and going into a new format. Mm-hmm. And you've seen him do that. Yeah. Um, Much our, to my frustration, yes. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and Tom Brady uh, is the same way. Um, there, there's, there's others that are like that. Um, say what you will, but Chad uh, Ochocinco, mm-hmm. as somebody who uh, de- does a lot of self-reflection, he's like that. Mm-hmm. Now, he's not going to tell you that yeah, because <laughs> he's still got to hype himself up, but he he does a lot of self-reflection. Um, surprisingly, Mike Tyson, if you ever listen to any of his podcasts, whether it's on Joe Rogan or his called Hot Box, and so you know what's going on on that one. <laughs> um, he does a lot of self-reflection. The, the best people are able to self-reflect. Uh, and this is another reason why uh, I like working for the chief. And he may kill me for you know some of the <laughs> frankness I've had in this conversation, which I, 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 will, I will take that that but you. Well, don't worry. He'll get his chance to come on, yeah. too. Um, he does a real good job on his own self-reflection. At least that's my opinion. I'm sure there's other people that say otherwise. But, I no, he does a good job on self-reflecting. Well, like all the examples you gave are examples of saying, I'm going to look at the deficiencies to figure out how to eliminate them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and that's what that self-reflection does. If you yeah. say, and whether it's a individually or it's a team or it's a system, you you if you look at it and identify the deficiencies, you can start to address them, yeah. and you can make those areas the weaker areas stronger. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, for my profession. It's hard sometimes for us to do that self-reflection on a day-in, day-out kind of business. Yeah. We, we do it um, in crisis. We can self-reflect and make changes. But the day-in, day-out where the other feels like they're being persecuted just for being the other, mm-hmm. we're not very good at that. And, that, and that's, again, this is all my opinion. Um, I think, though, because we are getting browner, we are getting more buried in women and gays and lesbians, uh, sooner or later there will be a trans officer working the beat somewhere in this nation. Mm-hmm. Um, we have different religions uh, of faith. We have Sikh officers. We have Jewish officers. Um, that conversation 
will come up. We will reach a critical mass um, and have that conversation about how can we do better for the other? Because now the other it's is part of also, us. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, I hope at one point, and I'm, and I'll be in this profession long enough that we have that conversation. I want that conversation to happen. I know that I'm too old and crusty. <laughs> it's set in my ways uh, that I won't be able to start that conversation. But I'm hoping the this new generation of officer comes in and have that conversation because we as a society needs it. Yeah. And I think it, kind of what, what you're saying really speaks to the importance of, uh, you know, what we talk about someone having a seat at the table, mm-hmm. right? When you don't, when there, when we were at a, as we get the police forces get more, more brown, more diverse, uh, more, you know, more women, et cetera, they become more diverse, then there are more conversations about more experiences and how all of this fits in within the framework of mm-hmm. law enforcement. And and then we do we start to see those different perspectives because they're at the table. Yeah. And when we had a system that had only the same people at the table, there was no recognition yeah. of those experiences. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, because and, – and, and I'm not dogging on white people as a whole. But you're in that institution of law enforcement, and you don't think you did anything wrong because when you go home in that segregated neighborhood, what are you being told? Oh, you did all right. Yeah. You know, they need to stay over there. You know, they've got all these nasty things that they say about brown people or anything um, because it's that old mentality now. Demographics as it is, that old mentality is dying off because our children are more integrated than ever. Mm-hmm. You know, white kids, black kids, Hispanic kids, Asian kids. I mean, you take a look at our school system, it is changing itself. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're here in the middle of Kansas. Yeah. And I like that because it's harder to hate when you know somebody. Mm hmm. You know, I mean, it can still happen, um, but it's harder to hate when you say that stuff and then you look over at your friend and he's aghast. Mm-hmm. And this is your boy. This is your person you run around with since you were, you know, both in peewee football. Yeah. So then you have to have that conversation with your family and say, well, why do we talk like that when... My best friend is is this person. Yeah. And then his family's been over, you know, for dinner. We've been over at theirs for dinner. Yeah. We can't talk like that, Mom and Dad. We can't talk like that, Grandpa. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the famous uncle, you yeah. know. <laughs> the proverbial proverbial uncle at Thanksgiving, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. No, I think that, I mean, that's it, – it, it, and it, it does speak like when when you can insulate yourself and everyone around you has the same experience as you, then you you will have confirmation bias. You mm-hmm. will you will look and say everyone around me agrees with me. Yeah, and they will. 
because they have the exact same experience in life that you have. And it's only through reaching outside of your own experience and trying to pull in Mm -hmm. some of those other experiences that you start to question whether you're right or at least understand that there might be another way of of, uh, seeing things. And that that other way of seeing things is equally true and honest. Yeah. Because it comes from, it's that experience from that group of people. And that is true for them, the mm-hmm. things that they say are true. So the issue here is trying to put pull these two worlds together so we can start, so we can have more of those conversations, yeah. right? And, and, and that's going to be hard. Yeah. Well, there's some natural resistance to that. Oh, there is a lot of natural resistance. You know, um, even I, who have who have both feet in, I'm resistant to that conversation myself because I go in and I work with these people. They are my friends or my coworkers. Um, if one of them was about to get shot, I get in front of them. Mm-hmm. And then I have family that says these things, and I have to pop up and say, "Well, that's not how it is in my department." You know. Yeah. And so I you think, ha- you are you have conflict internal conflict everywhere in this, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so when we have this conversation, when we talk, and this is going to be very different for our society, we have to talk with a very fine brush mm-hmm. and not a broad brush. Yeah. Because people get very upset when they get roped into a group yeah okay um especially (laughs) if they use a broad brush to paint somebody else you know it's one of those hey hey you can't do that to me yeah you know i'm not like that guy yeah you know but that i'm just really excited for when we have that conversation and maybe we are in smaller areas i'm not going to say smaller agencies but in smaller areas, different, you know, not the forefront of media, but in agencies that are throughout the nation, maybe they're having those conversations. And I hope they are because we need it. And, and it feels like we are. And I think even some of the conversations we're having in our community, and I think even conversations like this matter. Mm-hmm. I think conversations like this matter and help us think more broadly about some of the uh, the different sides of any of the, any of these conflicts and any of these issues and and it, to me it's always about um, spirit and intent are we having conversations with malice to try to point fingers and damage each other and say this is your fault or do we want to have conversations in a spirit of I'm upset with this situation, but I want to find this resolution and move us towards something better. Well, that last part, that's the way it has to be cloaked in. We start throwing malice or um, generalities at people who, whether they are that other or they are that person that has put on the uniform, you're not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we're already having conversations of malice out at the 
mainstream, mm-hmm. and it's not working. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I wish that some of those people would tamp down on both ends mm-hmm. and say, you know what? I'm looking at myself, looking at this entire thing. I'm going to bow out and let somebody else talk. Mm-hmm. Because we have to have more voices involved. Um, people get tired of listening to the same voice. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and that is also a trick that I've learned when I've done my investigations or I've helped with other investigations. You know, that suspect will get tired of listening to the person go on, and sometimes you have to tag team mm-hmm. and have somebody else talk. And I don't know if Sheriff uh, Campbell remembers this, but we had a case, and, and this is one of those because it's been adjudicated for nearly 10 years. So we get this house that's over in Harvey County uh, broken into, and they steal ATVs. And this was in March first day of spring if i remember correctly so i guess we're in a seasonal kind of thing <laughs> and it was snowing and i'm i'm on the beat you know weather is horrible i know that in about an hour and a half i will be home i will be asleep because i've been working nights and i'm just gonna let the snow just come down and i'm gonna sleep through it like a big old bear and uh, I see this van going along, and it's got an ATV sticking out of it. Now, to make... Which is pretty unusual. Uh, that was very unusual. <laughs> and so I get it stopped because, you know, the way they've got it going, it, it, it's, it's a clear violation of uh, hauling stuff. And so as we start going on, then all of a sudden the chatter starts going in my ear about, hey, we just had a break-in not too long ago. You need to detain them, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And so other people show up. And uh, Campbell, he was in the lead, and I said, we sit down, we start talking, and uh, he lets me sit in. And between the two of us, we got the confession because uh, all of a sudden I was the excited cop mm-hmm. and the cop that um, – made the guy a little bit uncomfortable because if you allow somebody to kind of hunker in and sit down that's another form of them being defiant Mm -hmm. so you have to have that that play on where you know if he's not comfortable he's more apt to start talking to you to be comfortable you know because he's already holding that lot the the truth in him Mm -hmm. so he's got that discomfort yeah and so Nothing physical ever happened, but it was one of those. I'd tell the guy, hey, why are you crossing your arms? That's a sign of disrespect. I don't care if it was or wasn't, Mm -hmm. but he thought it was, so he'd have to sit here, and the next thing you know, he'd start bouncing his leg. Okay. And then he finally just, Couldn't contain it anymore. Yeah, he had this vomit of (laughs) truth come out of him. So we go to the next guy, and we tell him what's up, and he said, yeah, we stole it. So we have to be uncomfortable to get going to the back truth. to the truth. And we have to be uncomfortable to make progress. 
hopefully when we have that uncomfortable, it's not something that causes violence. Yeah. Because that is another way of gaining comfort is the misery of others. Yeah. To get them down to the same feeling. Ideally, we have the conversation, we accept the discomfort, and and do it with the spirit of saying, look, it'll be uncomfortable for a minute, and then it'll be better. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, Wes, thanks for coming on today. I really, I enjoy all of our conversations. I enjoyed this one a lot. I actually, there's a couple of topics that I think I'll bring you back for subsequent episodes on. We can oh, that's if the chief will we'll let me come. You, know, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> or the sheriff. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks for doing what you do. And thanks for being such an important part of our community. Thank you. I don't know if I'm necessarily important, but I, I'm, I'm here to help because that's what I want to do. Well, and you, and, and you do that a lot. And I, people, I think people respond to that. They know. They know why. They know where your heart is, and they know why you're doing the work. And I think everyone appreciates that. Oh, good. I hope so. And uh, everybody out there, hope you guys have a wonderful day. Enjoy the weather, because it's only going to get hot again another day. <laughs> We're going to have a long summer, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Wes. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank a few of the people who have helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art, and Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Salt City Sound Production.